Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, monetary and fiscal policy measures have been described as unprecedented over and over again. The Federal Reserve met this week and reiterated it is, quote, committed to using its full range of tools to support the U.S. economy. And over in Washington, D.C., the deficit is ballooning as the government works to get cash to companies in need. But what are the long term ramifications and should we care? I care, Sarah. I know I care. Yeah, I do. And we've got a great (laughs) guest who will uh, give us some some insight on all these topics. But Sarah, before I introduce him, I need an update on your quarantine situation down there in Florida. How's it going? Are you uh, you you live in large? Live in large, I must say, as as large as you can be. I mean, at least now I'm able to go out on my patio. I can go on walks in the neighborhood, of course, staying six feet from other people. But but Florida is opening up. Pretty soon. Uh, Not the county that I am in, but starting on Monday, the majority of counties across the state are going to be working on reopening. So uh, it should be pretty interesting. And I have heard from a couple people who have been out and about on the streets more than I have that uh, they're actually pretty crowded. So so life life continues down here in Florida already. Wow. And they let your dad back in the house. Yeah, so my, my dad, for all of those of you who are, are concerned and very caring, uh, my dad is now back in the house, thankfully. He no longer uh, is exiled, so he, he's very happy about that. We, we had a nice celebration when he was welcomed back. That's good. You know, I always like to get the dad perspective on, on this show. Uh, That's lot what of, A lot of dads out there listening. You know. <laughs> yeah. <But let's... laughs> we all care about the dads. <laughs> Let's bring in our guest. Uh, first time on the show. Very excited to have him. His name is Zach Griffiths. He's a macro strategist at Wells Fargo's security. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Zach, uh, you might have heard, but we, we have a tradition on the show where at the end of the show, we talk about what we call the craziest things we saw in markets this week. And we usually leave it towards the end um, because it's kind of a fun, lighthearted thing. It's like having to dessert at the end of a nice, healthy meal. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have those vegetables first. But the craziest thing I saw this week is kind of right in your wheelhouse. So I'm going to jump the gun. I'm going to serve the cake as appetizer here and ask you what you think (laughs) about this story. Uh, It came out on Thursday. Uh, Washington Post story saying U.S. officials are crafting retaliatory measures against China over the coronavirus. Uh, You know, the notion is that uh, the White House thinks that China is to blame for the virus. Um, So they're they're talking a bunch of different measures, possibly uh, eliminating the sovereign immunity that countries uh, enjoy in the court system to allow people to sue China. Uh, for damages. But the thing that really, I think, caught my eye, it caused a little bit of buzz on Thursday is this one line in the story 
Some administration officials have also discussed having the U.S. cancel part of its debt obligations to China. Two people with knowledge of internal this conversation said it was not known if the president backed the idea. Now, obviously, the news flow out of this administration is unique in that you get this stuff floated like this that they're considering or thinking about. And then it's promptly denied. Uh, Larry Kudlow was out almost instantly denying this. But boy, I just wonder, uh, you know, as a a macro strategist, uh, you know, especially a guy with a rates background like yours, this must even the talk of something like this must make the the blood pressure go up. Um, I think this was widely uh, the the reaction I saw from everyone was that this is nuts. There's no way they could do this. Um, But I got to I got to get your take on it. Is this something that we should really be worried about? Uh, or is it just, you know, just sound like a, a bunch of, of rumor mongering going on? I don't think this is something we should be worried about. And when you think about the U.S. debt, I don't think the Treasury or the White House is going to want to do anything to call into question whether or not the U.S. government is going to pay interest on its debt or principal on its debt. The long term ramifications of something like that are just it's not a path they want to go down. And I think that. It's definitely crazy time. So you're getting a lot of news flow and, you know, you say craziest things in markets this week. It's hard to find something that's been happening that hasn't happened recently or is more severe than something that's happened recently. So I think it's it's definitely an interesting time, but I don't I don't give too much credence to that. I think the, the long term ramifications would be too detrimental to really consider. Two things I have to say about that. One, it's it's kind of like this was the the pre-dinner drink, Mike, uh, <laughs> and then we'll get into the vegetables, then we'll get to the dessert. But but I also have to say, I think that question may have been longer than the question that you asked last week on the show, which one of our listeners did call all you right, out look, on. Let's all stop timing my questions here. <laughs> I know they're long. You know, it's like on the soap opera where on Friends, remember they said you you put your hands over the the face of the person you're kissing so you get all the screen time. <laughs> That's kind of my my uh, idea with question, but uh, uh, you know you got to you got to give them you got to give them some meaty questions, Sarah, so they they know. Uh, let's hear your very short question for Zach, then, Sarah. Oh no, no, it won't it won't be that short, it but it'll be shorter than yours. I can guarantee that. Um, but I mean, speaking speaking of debt, uh, and this past week, you guys had a note titled "Bills Barrage Continues," and you revised upwards to the upside uh, what you think the deficit is going to amount to uh, in 2020. And you raised it to $3.2 trillion from $2.4 trillion. Now, one line that I loved, though, within the research report was you said, in total, we expect Treasury to issue a net $1.9 trillion. This is not a misprint because everything is just so crazy right now. But I mean, seriously, you think about the amount of debt being issued right now. You think about the amount of money being pumped into the system right now. I mean, can can we continue to see this amount of money uh, and this amount of debt being uh, digested by the market in a smooth way? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that we've been contemplating. And when you're talking about 1.9 trillion of issuance of any type of security in a single quarter, you have to ask, is there a market for it? And when we think about what's happened recently in T-bill issuance, which has already been north of a trillion over the past month alone, we look at where the demand comes from. And if you look at inflows into government-only money market funds over roughly the past eight weeks, 
inflows into those types of funds that do a lot of investing in T-bills, primarily T-bills, it's been over a trillion as well. So the demand is there, fortunately, for Treasury, who needs to raise these funds extremely quickly for these emergency lending programs, whether it be for unemployment insurance claims or just to cut checks to certain Americans for a certain amount. That is a deficit that needs to be raised quickly because that's money that actually goes out the door in a very short time frame. When we think about budget deficits historically, you think about spending over the next year. So they may do a trillion in spending, but that's over a year and you have time to raise money for that. You have tax payments coming in, which those have been delayed to July. So really the it's been remarkable how much they've had to raise, but up to this point, it does seem like there has been a market for it. And going forward, we think as some risk appetite comes back into the market, you see credit spreads have fallen, equities have risen, people are getting a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more optimistic with some states reopening and maybe some promising drug tests. I don't pretend to have much knowledge or insight into how some of those things are progressing, but you're starting to see some of that optimism. And as people move into somewhat riskier assets, whether it even be just prime money market funds instead of government money market funds, we think that backstop of demand is going to come off a bit. And that's when the Fed is going to need to come in and start shifting its asset purchases, which it's been ratcheting down quite a bit. We think it'll have to involve treasury bills pretty soon as that backstop demand kind of falls off at least a bit. Well, Zach, I'm glad you don't pretend to be an expert on the uh, pharmaceutical end. I don't know how many epidemiologist experts have suddenly appeared out of the blue to, to, to mansplain this all to us. But, um, you know, as you mentioned, this this insane amount of supply coming and the possibility that risk appetites uh, reemerge at the same time, you know, the Fed seems to be willing to basically write a blank check to the Treasury uh, market. Do you have a sense of of how that will all play out? How aggressively would they allow yields to rise? I mean, will they be trying to actually keep a lid on rates, in your opinion, or more just, as they described it, to keep the Treasury liquidity uh, functioning as it should be, uh, given this huge supply? I mean, um, because it's a, you know, in, in a normal world, you would think this much supply would just automatically be bearish for rates. Um, but how do you see the Fed's role evolving as sort of the economy recovers and that risk appetite uh, resumes? We think the Fed is going to have to continue tapering the amount of its asset purchases. As you mentioned, we really do believe that the whole point, or at least the majority of the point this time around versus when they were doing large-scale asset purchases after the global financial crisis is restoring liquidity to the market. And they're not necessarily focusing on keeping long-term yields suppressed as they were in Operation Twist, where what they were trying to do is really spur economic growth. Economic growth is essentially not possible right now. They're not looking to really jumpstart the economy, but build a bridge from here to the other side of when some of these virus concerns have really started to pull back, economies start to reopen. So we do think that they continue to taper their asset purchases. We think they include bills as they digest some of the supply. And the other thing that I would point out is it's not necessarily even that they need to take down this supply of T-bills. We haven't seen significant signs of any market indigestion in T-bills. But if you think about what their longer term plans for asset purchases are, it's to be done across treasuries proportional to what's outstanding. 
They haven't been doing any bills over the past month and a half. So just adding those into the mix is simply getting back to what they see as their longer term framework. And so do you see no sort of effort to control the yield curve at all going forward or? Yeah. So that's been something that's been talked about quite a bit. And from our perspective, that's not necessary and not something that the Fed is looking at immediately. And you heard no mention of it Wednesday at Chairman Powell's press conference, whether it be in his prepared remarks or I was very surprised to not hear it in the question and answer session. So I don't think it's something they would completely rule out, but I also don't think it's something they're looking at and really focusing on right now. When you think about a 10-year Treasury yield at 60 basis points, that doesn't feel like a rate that needs to have explicit yield curve control. And I suppose you could see some type of implicit yield curve control as we go forward if rates were to really back up in what they see as an unhealthy manner. And I think that would almost be more a representation of poor liquidity like we saw at the end of March than some other issue getting out of control. And so I think what they could do in that instance is shift their purchases to the longer end of the curve without explicitly saying we are targeting 0.5% on the 10-year yield. I don't think that's a path that they want to go down because when we think about the longer term implications of putting in place yield curve control, we think that probably reduces market liquidity and you don't have a quote unquote free market. I really don't think that's a path that the Fed is looking to go down at this point and you'd have to really see some serious issues in addition to what we've seen so far for that to come into play. So no mention of yield curve control, but essentially a few things that Powell did say was that he's not worried about risk assets right now. The price of risk assets also not really to worry about inflation at this point in time. Seeing where we stand now, though, does it seem like the Fed is almost stuck? They have to continue to say they're going to do whatever it takes. I mean, are we ever going to get to the point where we can actually see a tapering of their balance sheet? Uh, because we know they tried and it, they weren't able to do it. I mean, will we ever get to a point where that day actually comes uh, and we don't see a freak out? I think we will get to that point, but I agree it's probably a long ways away still. And there really is no upside for the Fed to start trying to get ahead of itself. There's still plenty of economic damage that's going to happen. And at least from seeing what the actual numbers are, our economics team is expecting a 22% decline in GDP in the second quarter. I think that's probably somewhere in the middle of the range of estimates. You've seen some really remarkable numbers. And when you get into these annualized numbers, if you think more happens in a shorter time frame, you get a larger decline on an annualized basis in a single quarter. But I think at this point, the Fed has made it clear that they're going to do whatever they need to do. They're going to continue to signal that for as long as they can, or as long as they need to, I should say. And that's the right move right now. And I don't think they're really going to get pushback from anyone regarding how accommodative they're being just because of how much the economy has contracted, how much activity in all ways, types, shapes has shut down. And it's really an unprecedented issue to deal with. And they're dealing with it with unprecedented actions. And, and we think that's the right way to go about it. And it's been an impressive, they've been impressively quick and proactive. And Chairman Powell reiterated that they will continue to do to be that way going forward. And, and we think that's the right approach. Sir, that question was nice and long. You're learning. You're learning here. 
I'm learning, right. learning from the yeah, best. That's Mike. right. I also loved that uh, the Fed press conference was over Zoom. That was pretty interesting. I was, I kept expecting like a Zoom bomber to show up, you know, like Mario Draghi or something to <laughs> to show up and crash the party. You would, you would think that someone would leak the Mario Draghi or someone like that. Just leak them the code, leak, leak them the Zoom meeting the number, leak them the password. They just show up. Demanding yeah. negative rates or something. We'd all love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Zach, what do you think about that notion of negative rates? I mean, did we get a, a pretty good indication this week that that is not something that's really on the table at the Fed or, or is it never say never type of situation? Well, I do think it's a never say never type of situation, but one thing the Fed has been adamant about throughout this whole process is negative rates is not something they want to do. It's something they looked at during the global financial crisis. They didn't think it was the right approach then. All comments by Fed policymakers we have heard recently would suggest they don't think it's the right approach now. Again, I would agree it's probably a never say never time. And you've seen some remarkable things, including the introduction of corporate bond purchases to their mix to their toolbox. But I think negative rates is out of the question for now. And perhaps that changes, but we don't expect it to. I mean, after the meeting, there were a lot of people who were very quick to throw their hands up, say this was a non-event, nothing new, nothing really surprising here. But I want to get your take uh, after we did get the statement, after hearing from Powell. Were there any new details surrounding either previous facilities that the Fed has announced um, that you maybe picked up on or, or any hints on what could be to come down the line in the future should we need more than we've already gotten? In the Q&A session, we did get a little bit of additional information, at least on timeline, for the corporate credit facilities. And it sounds like those are actually should be up and running quite soon based on Chairman Powell's comments. And in addition, he commented on the Main Street lending facilities, and I thought there were some interesting comments there. And we actually did get Thursday morning, they released additional information expanding the availability of the Main Street lending facilities to more companies, larger companies. So he did allude to that a bit. And he also alluded to the fact that this, these types of facilities are going to go to a lot of different companies. So they're going to have various term sheets and try to sort of piece it out. And that's why something like that is taking a bit longer. So I think that was an interesting look into what we can expect down the road for some of these Main Street lending facilities and how they're looking to tailor them to different businesses. And then I think it's reasonable to expect that the corporate credit facilities could be coming online relatively shortly. And when we think about what that means for the market, it's almost hard to separate simply them announcing them and what that's done for the corporate credit market and what bringing them online will do. You've seen primary markets are certainly open for corporate credit borrowers. You've seen a remarkable amount of issuance at the end of March and early April. So I think Some of these facilities have had their desired impacts already without even becoming operational, and that could be an additional boost to market liquidity once they do, but you've seen a lot of progress so far that I think the Fed's got to be pretty happy with. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Hey, Zach, I was looking over uh, some of the notes from your team, some of your recent notes. Uh, one um, uh, position you guys have that is kind of inter- interesting to me is um, you say that this rally in the dollar uh, is running out of steam and you expect sort of a weaker dollar over, I guess, the medium to longer term. And I bring it up because, boy, I've read a lot of dollar bearish dollar takes over the years. And it's a it's a it's a very uh, dangerous thing to predict. But um, I think it makes sense with the dollar being so strong, if that risk appetite does resume, um, that this seems like it's it's in a sense, an overdone uh, rally in the dollar. But unpack that for us a little bit, why uh, you guys feel that way. Is it kind of that whole dollar smile notion, you know, that the dollar is very strong when uh, the economy is very weak and strong when the U.S. is booming, but in that middle time, um, there's room for it to weaken? Yeah, so when we look for some U.S. dollar weakness over the medium to longer term, that that is sort of a nod to improved risk appetite, and more importantly, improved funding conditions, U.S. dollar funding conditions abroad and here in the U.S. And you've seen the Fed pump a ton of liquidity into the market, whether it be here in the U.S. or abroad. I think the FX swap lines have been tapped for roughly $400 billion. So we think that as some of the global commerce starts to pick up again, you get U.S. dollars flowing throughout the world through typical economic ways, that's going to improve funding conditions and remove some of the U.S. dollar scarcity that you've seen. All the while, some of these funding measures that the Fed has enacted are probably going to be slow to come off. So you're going to have what will probably be at least a short time period of an abundance of dollars in the system as the Fed recalibrates, the economy opens back up, opens back up, and you see some of this concern and and risk off tone fade more broadly. And I think one of the biggest risks to that, and it's it's a big risk to our rates call as well, is if you see some of these states opening up and it goes poorly, perhaps you see a big spike in cases or even you have fewer people coming out than expected and spending money and, and it's really going to be a slow grind back to a new normal of sorts and people aren't spending money the way that you would expect and you see a U or an L-shaped recovery, whatever you want to call it, I think that's going to be key in the direction of most financial markets going forward is, is how do some of these preliminary openings go? And if they are quite poor or if they go quite poorly, then you're going to see probably another bout of risk off, which would actually strengthen the dollar. So it's, it's kind of balancing those risks. But we do think that if, if things go reasonably well, you start to see risk appetite continue to improve, then you might have an oversupply of dollars, at least for a short time as, as the Fed recalibrates. 
Zach, what do you and your team make of, say, the tenure pretty much being, it's been anchored, it seems, around the 60 basis points level or so? I mean, we've seen this immense rally in the stock market, yet at the same time, you look at the rates market and, and not a whole lot is going on. I mean, to you guys, is it surprising that we haven't seen much more movement there? It's a bit surprising. We we thought and we still expect yields to move a little bit higher even in the near term before moving even higher toward the end of the year with our year-end target being 1.25%, which seems kind of crazy right now. But if you think about where we are and if things in the economy start to improve, the Fed is buying less, we think that's very much in reach. So I think it's a bit surprising when you consider how much equities have rallied, credit spreads have come in. That additional risk appetite does not seem to have flowed through to the Treasury market. And perhaps some of that is due to the fact that the Fed has been buying in such remarkable quantities that that really puts a hard ceiling on yields. But they've really dialed back the amount. And we think that's one of the contributing factors to why rates should rise at least a touch from here over the next two to three weeks. And when we think about some of these odd correlations across markets, that's sort of an indication that while things have improved, you probably aren't back to perhaps where the Fed would like to be if you have days when treasury yields are falling, but equities are also falling. So, you know, it's not your typical risk on risk off relationship. We're using that as a little bit of a barometer for health of balance sheets, health of ability to transfer risk and sort of the functioning of markets more broadly. So you're, you're starting to see some of that thaw back at the end of March. You saw some of these really odd correlations with, with markets moving in the same direction. But I think all of the Fed's measures are starting to have their desired impact and, and you're seeing improvement there, but maybe not quite to where they'd like to be. And that's sort of one of the issues restricting yields probably is that some of these correlations aren't back to what you would consider normal. I was going to ask you about that. Is the liquidity issues in the in the bond market um, sort of mission to, mission accomplished at this point? Are you still seeing any uh, any liquidity problems? Uh, I mean, uh, Treasuries being one thing, uh, but elsewhere in, in the bond markets as well. It seems as though liquidity has improved quite a bit, and I think when we look at all that's going on, there's this focus on returning to normal, but. These aren't normal times. There's only so much you can expect from the Fed, from the Treasury to get things operating as close to normal as possible. But normal is just is not going to be within reach when you have economies shut down this way. So I think for the most part, you could say that the Fed's operations in Treasuries and agency MBS have been quite successful. But if you do see, like we talked about, another bout of risk off, if some of these reopenings go poorly, if expectations for perhaps a treatment or a vaccine really fall off the table, then that could really go in the other direction. And the Fed has shown that it's not going to hesitate to ramp up whatever measures, alter whatever measures, do whatever they have to do to address any strains in the market wherever they may show up. Mike, I think we've had enough um, vegetables. <laughs> I think we should be allowed to to get to dessert now. All right. Well, you know me, sir. I like <laughs> to have two desserts. So even though I gave one crazy thing early, I'm I'm prepared. I'm, I'm of prepared course you have for another. a second helping. But I will let you kick it. I will let you <laughs> kick it off. Go ahead. 
All right, mine is a very odd one this week. I will just say that up front. So central banks have gone virtual. There is a story in the Financial Times, and I'm just gonna read you a few excerpts. So the headline is, virtual rate cut forces Nintendo gamers into riskier assets. <laughs> Shock among users as Animal Crossing's Bank of Nook slashes rates to near zero. So so this is, this is the, the start of the story. It says, Savers at the Bank of Nook are being driven to speculate on turnips and tarantulas as the most popular video game of the coronavirus era mimics global central bankers by making steep cuts in interest rates. The estimated 12 million players of Nintendo's cartoon fantasy Animal Crossing New Horizons were informed last week about the move in which the Bank of Nook slashed the interest paid on savings from around 0.5% to just 0.05%. And it, it details players of this game on Reddit saying things like, I'm never going to financially recover <laughs> from this. Island Recession <laughs> Incoming talks about how there's this stock market, S-T-A-L-K, where people have to bet on turnips and people have to go out and buy tarantulas now uh, because people aren't <laughs> making enough in their savings accounts. Um, and it's absolutely hysterical that a video game decided to take a central bank who knew there was a video game central bank um, and cut their interest rates to almost zero. Talk about going out on the risk spectrum when you're buying tarantulas. Seriously. I mean, wow. Is, is, you don't even know what you're getting there. I'm, I'm assuming there's an end the bank of Nook and audit the bank of Nook uh, movement already. <laughs> I don't know, but the, the face of bank of Nook looks to be a raccoon. So you'd have to have it out with the raccoon. <laughs> All right. Zach, uh, Sarah, Sarah clearly brought her a game w when it comes to the craziest things this week. I, I, no pressure. That's a tough one to top, but uh, let's hear what you got. I'm impressed. I, I don't know how I follow that up. That's that is phenomenal. I got I got to give you that. I, I, I told you off the bat. <laughs> Thank you. That I really great. tried on this one. So mine is definitely less interesting and perhaps less crazy than that. But I've been watching what's going on with three month LIBOR, U.S. dollar three month LIBOR. It's fallen, I think, about 33 basis points this week alone and 13 basis points from Wednesday to Thursday. And it's been a huge move. It's down almost 90 basis points in the month of April. And I was going back to see when was the last time it's fallen this month much in a short time. And sure enough, it's only been about a month and a half. Uh, you go back to March when expectations for rate cuts really started to, to come into effect and into focus. Three month dollar LIBOR was falling quite a bit then. But I think this time around, it's showing that Funding markets in the U.S. are improving. You're seeing CP rates come down. The Fed's got to be happy with what's going on there. I think credit's starting to flow in the very front end, which is one of the first places that we saw issues crop up as corporations started to lose the ability to raise cash through commercial paper and draw down their revolvers. So I think that's another encouraging sign. And it's been quite a move over a very short time. So that's it's definitely, I think, something the Fed will be happy with and something we've been keeping an eye on. Yeah, I was going to say, was that that spike in LIBOR, you think, is that primarily because so many corporations were, were drawing down their, their revolvers? Yeah, I think that's what you saw back then is, you know, think, you know people were, were starting to get really concerned with, are corporations going to make any money? Are they going to have any money yeah. in a very short time? So I think that's that was the big story back then. 
And as all of these measures come online, and if you think about the commercial paper funding facility, that's priced at OIS plus 110 for the best borrowers. That's way above where market rates are, but it seems just the existence of this backstop facility has really improved markets. And if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, only $3 billion has been taken down by that commercial paper funding facility. So it's having the desired effect, again, without really being operational. And I think the Fed's got to be pleased with that. I wonder how many of those revolvers were drawn down in sort of a, a moment of panic where you, you were worried that the, the corporate mark, bond market was not going to be open anytime soon. And maybe there's a little regret on, on some of the part of the, some of those people. I would imagine if you see, you mean, if you've seen what happened at the end of March and April, the, the markets were wide open. I think we notched record weeks of primary issuance two to three weeks in a row. And really the, Anecdotally, we've heard these companies drew down their revolvers so that they have the cash and then parked them back at the bank. So I think you're starting to see some of that thaw as people are more confident that they have access to the capital markets. And that should be good for financial markets and good for economic prospects as we get to the other side of this virus fallout. Well, you know, we're in crazy times when you see a massive move like that, Zach, and, and you look back to when is this the biggest since and it's only a month ago. <laughs> yeah. I know that happens to me almost every single day where I'm like, oh, this has got to be something. Two weeks. I was thinking to myself <laughs> when I was looking into this, I'm like, what is even crazy? Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> yeah, we've struggled. We've struggled. It's true. <laughs> That's why I've had to go to, to virtual video games. <laughs> <actual things>. <laughs> Getting creative over here. <laughs> All right. Mike, you're right, on I'll, give, I'll give you my bonus crazy thing. Uh, Zach, you might not agree with me, but as Sarah knows, I, I consider the gambling markets to be legitimate markets. I know I know uh, many on Wall Street do not uh, like to uh, conflate the two, but uh, <laughs> for purposes of crazy things, I, I do. So uh, New York Post, once again, a great source of crazy uh, market stories, brings us the tale of a guy in Canada who got into a game of rock, paper, scissors with his buddy. It was a high stakes game of rock, paper, scissors, mind you. And this guy lost $500,000 playing rock, paper, scissors with his buddy. The crazy part is he actually paid up. He took out a mortgage on his house to uh, pay this guy. Um, but then, the, of course, it ended up in the, in the courts. Uh, and a court basically invalidated this gambling debt. Uh, and the decision that forced this guy to take out the mortgage. Uh, and, and the reason was because they view gambling, it has to be on something that involves skill. And rock, paper, scissors does not involve skill. So they, they invalidated <laughs> this guy's half a million dollar uh, rock, paper, scissors loss. Uh, I've got mixed feelings I, on this. So if this went to court... If this went to court, then this had to have happened before coronavirus happened, right? I, I think, yeah. So the... the um, the actual rock, paper, scissors game in question was like in 2011. And then this it's oh, OK, because my immediate my immediate question was, how are people together playing rock, paper, scissors right now? <laughs> well, <laughs> Shouldn't be happening. That's a good point. I guess we <laughs> could do it over. You Zoom, can do it but... over Zoom, Sarah. Right, you ready I, I, here, for one million dollars? Sarah, ready? you ready? Ready? Let's do it. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. <laughs> Get to your hand. <laughs> what do you have? <laughs> I have paper. Oh, I, have I got paper. a scissors then. Ah oh, man, I'm down a million bucks. <laughs> there goes my life savings and much more. I, I'm gonna say you guys gotta. I gotta come on and bring my A game or whatever is better than A game for my craziest thing because you guys just blew me out of the water big time. 
Yeah, well, Zach, next time, to say that you know. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no. It's... Now, now Mike's dishing out the truth. Uh, yeah. uh, but look, Mike, Mike stretches the rules a little bit, then I gotta catch up. Then Mike stretches the rules, then I gotta catch up. This is an ongoing cycle we have. Well, now I know. Very I'm friendly ready. competition between Sarah and I over this. But I, I think I, well, I think she won't. Well, high she... expectations for you next time, Zach. I'll give her the rare W on this one. Oh, thank you. With the bank of no. Yeah. <laughs> Well, high expectations of you, even higher next time, Zach. So Zach Griffith, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And remember, we also have our very own Bloomberg Podcast hotline, which is 646-324-3490. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.